kingdom of peace comes through a child, a king unlike any this world has ever known. His rule liberates the captive and brings victory to the oppressed, a divine victory that puts an end to all human wars once and for all, a final triumph which brings ultimate peace. O oh, eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, mightily spread abroad your spirit that all people may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one God, to whom be dominion and glory, now and forever. I've, uh, I've, I've been on staff here at New Life for 16 years, but the last four and a half years, uh, we've been at New Life Downtown, which is a congregation of New Life Church. I think you're aware that New Life is a multi-congregational church, so we have New Life Friday night, we have uh, now New Life Manitou Springs, which you heard from uh, Joe Kirkendall last week, and we have New Life Downtown, and so that's primarily where I am on Sundays, but I'm really excited about being able to come back and be with you uh, from time to time up here at New Life North, right where it all began. And uh, I, I came here 16 years ago as a single dude with my Jeep and uh, joined, I was an intern in the worship department, which basically meant I made copies for uh, rehearsals of music and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and we were over there in that room where the carpet was still teal and uh, there were a lot of banners being waved and you had to sort of be careful, be alert in worship, you know, so you didn't get clocked. Um, but, but now, 16 years later, uh, I, I married, my, I married my, high, my college sweetheart a year after I moved here in the summer of 2001. Uh, we have four children, and I realize that for some of you, you haven't seen our younger two kids. Or you've, you, you know, I was talking to uh, Keith Mundy, you know, who remembers when our oldest was born, but some of you haven't seen uh, a new family picture. So I just wanted to show this to you. This is our family. That's my wife, Holly. Sophia, our oldest, is 11 and a half. Nora just turned 10. Jonas is seven, and little Jane is four and a half. There's our family. So consider this your Christmas card, if you will. So there you go. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we open the scriptures. So Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you're saying and that you're doing in our lives. And God, we echo what Pastor Stephanie said earlier today. Lord, would you give us hearts that are full of expectation today? 
Would you awaken us to be able to be aware of all that you are saying and doing? Lord, would you give us eyes that would see Jesus today? And would you give us ears that would hear the words of Jesus today? And Lord, would you give us hearts that would be ready to believe and to receive and and to be changed into the very likeness of Jesus, we pray. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I grew up in a home that expected God to show up. Uh, I grew up in Malaysia. I've lived in America now for 23 years. I'm a citizen and all that wonderful stuff. Uh, but I grew up in Malaysia and I grew up in a home that was uh, to parents who were really moved by the, the Holy Spirit. And so I remember, <laughs> I remember on Saturday mornings, my dad uh, would turn on the latest Hosanna cassette tape. And uh, it could have been Don Moen singing, but I would never know because he was, my dad was singing in tongues over it really loudly. And uh, so I never got to hear Don Moen. But... Um, but eventually I came downstairs and we would have these family prayer times. And, and I remember having home fellowship gatherings in our, in our homes. That's what our church called them, you know, home groups and prayer meetings. And, and I remember pe- seeing people sitting in chairs kind of in the middle of the living room and people surrounding them, praying over them, praying for healing, praying for God to show up. And a lot of this stuff happened really technically past my bedtime, but I would peek around the corner from upstairs, look down the stairs, and see this stuff happening, and see people cry, and see the Lord move, and see miracles happen. So I was formed to believe that God does stuff, uh, that God is living and active, that God shows up on the scene. In fact, it, it got in me a little bit so that uh, I, I would be riding the school bus and uh, there would be people on the bus that I didn't really know, but I felt burdened to pray for them. So I would do one of those sneak prayers, you know, where you just kind of gently put your hand, you hope that they don't realize it, and you just pray for them. You know, t- in today's world, I don't know if you can do that kind of thing to strangers, but in those days, you know, just sort of, and then if they looked back and they realized, you know, someone, you'd be like, what? No, nothing. <laughs> you know, but I was praying for them, praying that they would come to faith and you know, the Lord would do something in their eyes. And I was also the kind of kid that really loved understanding uh, theology and the Bible. Um, there's a story of when I was, you know, sick at about 12 or 13 years old. I was uh, sick in my room and, and I, I, was, I asked to listen to these cassette tapes of this teacher teaching basically doctrines about justification and sanctification and glorification. This is me at 12. I wanted to understand it. I had this love for the word of God. And so as I grew, those two things are sometimes in tension with one another because you believe that God is the God who shows up and does stuff, but you also want to understand why he does and sometimes why he doesn't. And like many of you, we've all lived long enough to know that, yes, we want to keep faith alive and hope alive, but sometimes life beats it out of us. And my question for us this morning is, is there any room for God to do the unexpected in your life? Is there any room, whether in your theology or in your life itself, is there space for God to show up? And so this morning, we're talking about healing. We're, we're, the title of this morning's message is, When God Comes, There Is Healing. And the question before us today is, is there any room inside of us, in the midst of the realities of life, maybe even the disappointments that you've faced, is there room for that little seed of faith to grow again and to say, I think God does stuff. I think God can and will 
put stuff back together again. This is exactly the feeling that the people of Israel had as they were waiting for God to show up on the scene. Our text this morning is Isaiah 35. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Isaiah 35, verse 3. We've, been, we've decided that over these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, many Christians call this season Advent, the season of longing and waiting, expecting for God's arrival. And we've decided as a church to kind of walk through different texts from the book of Isaiah as we prepare. And it's a way of saying, look, just as the people of God in the Old Testament were waiting for Jesus the Messiah, we kind of stand between two advents, between two arrivals, between the coming of Jesus and between his return. And so in a, in a very real way, we can put ourselves in touch with what these people are feeling. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. In other words, when God shows up, there will be justice at last. Judgment is only bad news if you're on the wrong side of justice, right? But for the people of God who were awaiting this, this was good news because they said, yes, God, would you finally bring judgment? Because to us, that sounds like justice. And then he says, he will come and save you. When God shows up, there's an expectation of justice, there's an expectation of salvation, and then there's more. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. This is a beautiful image because there's really only one thing that makes a desert a wasteland. It's the lack of water. And so this image is a powerful image because it says to them, look, if you just change one thing, everything changes. If a wilderness just had water, all of a sudden everything changes. All of a sudden now there's vegetation. And not just that, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, grass shall become reeds and rushes. In other words, change one thing. Introduce water into the desert and all of a sudden things begin to grow again. All of a sudden the right kind of animals show up and the wrong ones leave. The prophet is giving us a picture that even though things seem so desolate, even though things seem so barren and, 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 and like a wasteland, that in reality, the only thing the desert is missing is water. Change one thing and everything changes. And that's the prophet's metaphor for the coming of God. The coming of God is that one thing that actually changes everything. It's the one thing that actually changes everything. When God comes, things get put back together. When God comes, things get put back together. The Hebrews had a word for this. It was the word shalom. And many times we hear this word and we think, oh, is that, is that peace? Is that a, a greeting? Yes, but it, it points at a much bigger picture. The idea of shalom is God's good world put back together again. Everything that was fractured and broken because of sin, because of rebellion, all the stuff that was pulled apart gets pulled together again. It comes to life. When you see shalom being described in the Old Testament, you see justice, you see peace, you see wellness. Oftentimes, shalom is depicted by a feast. 
That's why so many, so many occasions in the Old Testament are marked by a meal. I could get into that. I like food. In fact, you know, uh, when, when we had Thanksgiving just a little bit ago, I had a picture of this moment. Uh, my parents, who live in town now, they, they came over to our house. And my wife's parents, my wife is from a small farming uh, community in northwest Iowa, and her parents came in. And there was this moment after the meal was over, and, and you know, Holly and I were sort of, you know, I don't know what we were doing in our tur- post-turkey coma. And the four grandparents were playing cards with our four kids. And I thought, this is a scene right here. Because here's this, these two wonderful people from a farming community in Iowa, and here's my parents, two pastors from Malaysia. People that, there's no other reason why they should be introduced to one another's lives. And yet, because of us and our family, and now this meal, this feast, here we are together. There, there are little slivers of shalom that happen in our life. Little moments where we say, oh, that's what it looks like when everything gets put back together again. This is a glimpse of it. When God comes, things get put back together. Now in the New Testament, what they didn't expect was that God would show up in the middle of history, in the middle of time, and begin doing something in advance of a greater ending. So the gospel writers want us to catch this. They want us to see that in Jesus is not just another prophet, is not just another teacher, but in Jesus, Yahweh himself has come back to Israel. This is, and they have many different ways of showing us this, but look at this text here in Luke 7. Luke 7, verse 18. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, he's in prison, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I love this story because here's John, the brave prophet, right? John, who's like clothed in camel hair, eating locusts and honey. I mean, it doesn't get any wilder than John, right? And here John's in prison, and even John is not immune to despair. Even John is not immune to deferred hope that makes the heart sick. And so John says, would you just ask Jesus, is he the one who was to come? Is Jesus actually God with us, or should we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, You go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus says, I I get that John's wondering if this is it. Here's what you can tell John. You tell John. You tell John the lame walk. You tell John you've seen blind eyes open. You tell John. All of the things Isaiah said would happen are now happening. You tell them your God has come to save. When Jesus announced this, this was a way of saying, look, you show them, you tell them what this means for us. I love this because it means that the gospel writers won't let us off the hook with Isaiah 35. The gospel writers won't let us read Isaiah 35 and say, well, maybe spiritually speaking, maybe it's a metaphor The gospel writers say, no, actually, healing is a sign that God has come. 
Healing is a sign that God is good. Luke, Luke won't let us kind of squirm our way around Isaiah 35 and say, well, that was nice, but I don't really know if that's a priority for God. And, you know. Luke puts it as the confirmation that Jesus is God come at last. In fact, it's not Luke, it's Jesus, right? John's disciples say, how, what should we say to John? He wants to know, are you the one? Are you God who has come to us? And Jesus doesn't point to his teaching, good as I imagine it was, he points to these physical signs. He says, no, listen, what Isaiah said was right. Healing is a sign that God has come. But healing is also a foretaste of the future. See, one of the things that, that maybe we, we didn't expect, one of the things for sure that the disciples and the, the people of God around the time of Christ's life did not expect is they thought when God showed up, it would be game over. It's all done. What they did not anticipate is that Jesus would show up, live and die and be raised up from the dead and ascend into heaven. And then we would wait for the final culmination. They didn't quite anticipate that. And so that's why healing is a foretaste of the future. Yes, it's a sign that God has showed up, but it's also a foretaste that one day God is going to put it all back together again. It's a foretaste of the future. That means when you read the Gospels, there's a reason why John's Gospel in particular calls them what? What does John call these miracles? He calls them signs. What do signs do? They tell you what's coming. When you're going north on I-25 and it says, Denver, 30 miles, you're like, okay, we're headed in the right way. A healing is a foretaste of the future because it's Jesus' way of saying, look, this is available now and this is what's coming and it's even better. It's even better. It's a foretaste of the future. Now, I, I love to cook. And um, I like to cook and I think that this happened in me because as a kid, I used to always hang out in the kitchen with my mom. And... Uh, her way of cooking was, was everything from scratch and even spices, refreshed spices. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's this, uh, it's called a mortar and a pestle. You know, you, you have this, I don't know, what it, what's it made out of? Some kind of stone bowl, basically. It's like a caveman tool, you know? Uh, and uh, and I would, I would, that was my job in the kitchen. Is she'd give me some garlic and I'd just pound that and mash that up. And I'd watch what she'd be doing. And one of the perks of helping in the kitchen is you get to taste dinner in advance. And so I, I would smell it. Oh, mom, that tastes so good. So would you come and try this and see if you like it? I'll try it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, mom, that's amazing. But that was just a foretaste. The dinner was even better. And church, this is what healing is like. It's a foretaste, and it's good. But I've got good news for you. The future that God is bringing one day is even better. It's even better. And the fun thing about being God's kids is we get to hang out in the kitchen with him. We get to hang out in the kitchen and say, Jesus, what are you preparing for the end of all ages? He says, well, I'm preparing a time when everything will be set right and heaven and earth will be put back together again. Jesus, that's amazing. Could I have a taste of that now? And sometimes we get that. The foretaste of the future. So what does that mean for us? I think it means at least two things. And the first is this. We pray for healing because it is consistent with who God is and what God does. 
Healing was not a random party trick. We've already said this. It is a picture of the very heart of God and the very purposes of God for his world. So we pray for healing because we're not asking for something that is out of line with who God is. Does that make sense? As God's kids, we get to be bold in saying, Lord, I'm not asking for something that you're against. I'm not asking for something that is, whoa, that was kind of risky. I'm asking for something based on my confidence in who you are. This is who you are. You're good. And one day you're going to make it all right. So now, Lord, can we ask for this? We pray for healing because it's consistent with who God is and what God does. It's not an aberration. It's not, it's not something that's just, well, it's kind of way out there. And once in a while, God makes an exception. This is sometimes the, the, the trouble, the, the trickiness with our language. You know, we, we sometimes speak of miracles as if God, the clockmaker, decides to mess with the gears of the clock. And, well, he doesn't want to do that too much, so don't ask that much. Right? Isn't that sometimes how we think? That God set up the world to work like this giant clock. And if asking God to do something is like, well, God, I don't really want to have you mess up the clock and you set these gears. That's not the picture, church. The picture is of a God who from the beginning has always desired shalom for the world. And so when we pray for healing, we're not asking God to make an exception. We're asking God to do what he does. We're asking God to be who he is. We're not asking for suspension of the rules of nature. That, 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 all of that language is so funky to me, <laughs> for lack of a more technical way of saying it. Because we're not asking God to suspend the rules of it. We're asking God to be consistent with who he is and what he does. Give us a taste even now. Last year at New Life Downtown, we, as a congregation, became witnesses. We, we gained front row seats to this. Our associate pastor downtown is a young man named Evan Riedahl, and some of you might know him. Uh, he, he grew up going to um, uh, the youth group here at New Life, and um, I almost said tag. Um, but yeah, some of you will know that. And, um, and was part of all, all, of the, all of that stuff, and Evan went away, went off to uh, Bible school, and came back, got married, and, and he joined our staff at New Life downtown, and he and his wife um, were pregnant with their first child. This was about a year and a half ago, and they were very excited. They were really looking forward to this special time. And right around 39 weeks, uh, Karen, his wife, could feel that, that baby William was, was not moving. And so they kind of got concerned. They, they called. They went into the hospital, and, and um, they did an emergency C-section. When William um, came out, he came out pale white, not moving, not breathing, they immediately rushed him to the NICU. They, they determined that he had lost about 80% of his blood. Uh, they immediately did blood transfusions, but, but it, there, there were other things going on. There were seizures, there were tremors. They ended up putting him on a cooling treatment. Some of you might be familiar with this, a cooling treatment for 72 hours. and He was severely anemic, obviously, and... And there was fear of, of, of brain damage and fear of, of, of really not even making it. Needed a breathing tube, feeding tube, all of this stuff. The MRI on, on day four after the 72 hours of the cooling treatment happened, the MRI kind of re revealed that, yeah, there was some extensive damage, but they weren't sure what that would mean. And so we'd been following all of this via text with Evan and with others and but it wasn't quite the time to go to the hospital. They didn't want uh, people there yet. And 
And finally he called and he said, hey, would you come tomorrow morning? Would you come to the hospital? And I woke up that morning understanding what my visit was going to be like. That this was going to be one of those really difficult moments. They were preparing themselves for just the worst news of all. As the doctors had told them that they should. And I arrived at the hospital, and it was one of those moments where it, the emotion was so charged that even in the lobby when I greeted them, we just sort of collided into one another's arms and just burst into tears. I was weeping, they're weeping. And we went back in, in, into the room, and we, we hadn't seen William yet, and Evan and I are talking, and I was just beginning to, to help prepare him to grieve this loss. And, and we're talking through all of this. We take a break for lunch. And then after lunch, he says, why don't you just come up to the room and the NICU and, and, and see William? I said, yeah, I want to see him. So I go up there and he's got every possible sensor and tube and all of this stuff. And something happened the moment that I saw him. And when I saw him, I thought, this is not, this, this is not a baby whose life is over. Something is going to change here. And they decided to just keep hanging on for a little bit and then they pulled out the breathing tube and he began breathing on his own and then they pulled out his feeding, feeding tube and then he began eating on his own. And then he got more and more responsive and then they had an appointment with their neurologist who said, he's my little miracle baby. And then the nurses that were attending him said, look, we don't throw around this word but all of us on different shifts, we're calling William the little miracle that made it. There was a hole in his heart and the official medical report said the hole closed spontaneously. None of his organs had any problems. His brain is still in a healing process. He does physical therapy regularly now. You should see the smile on this kid's face. He's 18 months old now. And there's definitely some things that they're continuing to work through and there's a lot of stuff that's just unknown. But the phrase that everyone uses at every one of his physical therapy appointments and every one of his medical checkups is, you know, based on reading the file, we weren't expecting to see this. It was unexpected. God showed up and did something unexpected, did something that, to be honest, I wasn't expecting, did something that was outside of what we thought could happen. Now, I, I'm aware as a pastor, that this is not everybody's story. I'm aware that for some, of, for some of you, that story has gone a different way. And I understand the pain and the ache of saying, how can I believe again? How can I even ask again? How can I trust again? How do I, what do I do with this? Yesterday, our, our second born turned 10. And um, her name's Nora. I showed you that picture. And I, I went in her room last night just to... Uh, tuck her in and to pray over her and I found her just kind of sitting facing the window in her room and just sitting on the floor just kind of body language is totally disappointment and I went and sat down by her and said Nora what are you okay shrugged her shoulders it's like honey are you a little sad because you were sick on your birthday she was like yeah and I said it kind of made your day not as good as you, you had hoped we sat for a little bit, I held her, and, and had one of those parent moments where I felt like to take a risk to ask a different question. I said, Nora, are you, 
Are you wondering why, like we prayed earlier this week and we're wondering why God didn't heal you before your birthday? <laughs> she goes, yeah. And I know, listen, to you and to some of you who've suffered deeply, it's nothing. A cough and a cold, sinus headache on a birthday. I, I get that. But in that moment, it was a picture to me of how a parent's heart breaks when you see your child disappointed. And you know, I, could, I couldn't fix this for you. And in that moment, I sat with her and I said, honey, I, there are a lot of things in life that we don't understand. And, and Sophia, our oldest being the classic firstborn, she goes, God has a plan through this, Nora. <laughs> She's 11. I'm like, honey, shh. <laughs> and uh, I said, honey, I... Even adults, we don't, we don't always understand this stuff. But we do know that God is good and that he loves you. And I said, honey, do you believe that? She goes, yeah. And I prayed over her and tucked her in. And I thought, how perfect that the very next morning I'm gonna be up here with all of you asking you the same questions. Do you believe that God is good and that he loves you? And are you willing to ask for healing again because it's not an exception, it's not an aberration, it's not out of character, it's completely in line with who he is. So here's the second thing I think all of this means for us, is that even if you miss the foretaste, you still get in on the feast. Even if you miss the foretaste, you still get in on the feast. Sometimes I'll be at a wedding reception, you know, I'll finish doing the ceremony for a young couple and it's, the reception is out in the courtyard and you have the waiters that are walking around with the tray. You ever had this? Well, I, I, I did a wedding that was at a really nice facility and the, the, the waiters were walking around as an appetizer serving like a stick of roast lamb or something like that. It was like, I was like, wow, that's an appetizer, you know, cheese and crackers was sort of at my wedding. But, um, <laughs> but I, couldn't, I couldn't flag one of them down. They were walking by and I was like, no, there's one. And I'm totally missed out on the appetizer. But I could still go to the reception. And this is the thing for all of us, church. We ask because it's completely consistent with who God is and what God does. And even if we miss the foretaste, you still get in on the feast. Even if you miss the foretaste, you still get in on the feast. Amen. John the Baptist that day was not spared suffering and a gruesome death, but he's part of the feast. He's part of the feast. One day we're gonna sit at a banqueting table with all of the great saints of old, with Abraham and Moses and Joshua, and we'll see John there, and he'll say, thank you for the messenger that brought me hope that said, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one I've been waiting for. So as the worship team comes and as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, I want for all of us this morning, church, to begin to calibrate our hearts and to say, Jesus, you are the one I am waiting for. You are the one. You are how I know that healing is available. You are how I know that God has come. You are how I know that the feast of the future is gonna be even better. Amen? The greatest foretaste of the future is the forgiveness of sins. First Peter says this, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you stand together, church? Wherever you are this morning, there is healing available for you. And it's not an either or proposition. It's not either physical healing or forgiveness of sins. It's all available for you this morning. But maybe because we're preparing our hearts to come to the table, maybe it is for you that we start right here. We start with the core of who we are. And we say, Jesus, I believe you're putting everything back together again. I believe that healing is a foretaste of that. But God, I want you to start in a deeper place than that. I want you to start with my heart. Some of you came in carrying a guilt and a shame that you're wondering if there's any cure for that. Is there any ailment? Is there any, sorry, is there any ointment? Is there anything that can cure that? Jesus gave his life for our complete wholeness, for all of it. Forgiveness is the foretaste, the greatest foretaste there is. So would you open up your hands like this? For centuries, when Christians come to the table, they, they come by examining their hearts, as the Apostle Paul said to do. To say, Lord, search us. God, in all that you're putting back together again, would you start with my heart? Would you start with my relationship with you? Would you start with who I am? Would you start with the, the sins that I've committed, the way that I have not loved, the way that I've, I've, I've failed? Would you start with that? And then would you let your healing work its way outward? Would you let it heal my body? Would you let it heal my relationships? Would you let it heal our community? So wherever you are this morning, would you just begin by saying, Lord, Lord, I need your mercy. Lord, I need your grace. Lord, we'll never outgrow our need of your mercy. That's why we'll never stop coming to the table to let your body and your blood be our bread and our cup. Be our portion, God. Be our portion, God. So Lord, as we come to your table today, we come because we know that you have heard our prayer. We come because we know that you beat us here. You got here first. <laughs> You came to the altar first and gave, gave up your life for us. And so we come today offering ourselves a living sacrifice, freely receiving from you your grace, your mercy, your life, your healing, your blood, your body. In Jesus' name.